It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Thank you for joining us for a Tuesday edition. So for those of you who may have forgotten, this is the one where you're stuck with just me. There is no Mary Langston. I am in New Hampshire. Uh, they tell me that is the political epicenter of the world, although arguably less so now that Governor DeSantis has dropped out. We'll talk about that in just a second. But for now, we'll go back to a job I had many moons ago when I was a prosecutor. As you know, President Trump's been indicted in federal court and state court, state court in New York and state court in Georgia. And it's the Georgia case that has been making the news lately. It actually resembles one of the soap operas my grandmother used to watch. I can't remember if she watched like All My Children or Days of Our Lives or Guiding. I can't remember what she used to watch, but this has all the makings of a really poor soap opera. You got the elected DA, Fannie Willis, allegedly hiring a boyfriend, paying him more than she pays other people. That boyfriend lacks criminal experience. He may have some, but not what you need for a RICO prosecution. And certainly they're far more qualified criminal litigators than he would be. That doesn't mean he's not a good litigator. I don't know if he is or not. But criminal law is pretty niche. Um so he, I don't think he got his job based on what he knows. I think he got his job based on who he knows. And uh, I guess we'll just leave it right there. The question is, is this a political matter? Is it a legal matter? Or is it a hybrid of the two? And for those who think it may derail the prosecution, it certainly will delay. It will delay the prosecution of President Trump and others. Will it derail the prosecution? Uh, Let's talk about that for a second. So optics are awful. Politics, that's awful. Legally, what's a judge going to do with this? So, So I understand the family court judge is interested because there are allegations that, well, Mr. Wade's going through a divorce. So his wife is interested in when this relationship, if there is a relationship between he and Fannie Willis, Nathan Wade's wife is obviously interested in when that relationship began. Did it begin during the pendency, the course of their marriage? That's a relevant question in any family court situation. There are also allegations of contempt that he's been a little slow providing documents. Why does that matter? Well, income matters when you're talking about domestic relations for alimony purposes, child support if there are any children involved. So all of that is relevant. So we can see why the family court judge would be involved. We can also see why the Georgia Bureau of Investigations might be involved. If you are paying someone for work they have not done using government funds, uh, that's a no-no, not to use an overly legal term. Uh, That's a no-no. You can't do that. So family court is involved. Fulton County commissioners would be involved because they provide the budget. And if she is misusing budget funds or paying 
someone. You got, they, they may have like nepotism clauses there. I get why they would be involved. GBI, I get why they would be involved. But let's go to the trial judge. So imagine state of Georgia versus Donald J. Trump or state of Georgia versus Mark Meadows or state of Georgia versus fill in the blank. So what's a trial judge going to do with it? Is it relevant? And I know because I have tried this out on some of my friends who were smart enough not to go to law school. And their immediate reaction is, of course, it's relevant. It's relevant if the lead prosecutor is having an affair with his boss. It's relevant if they're going on trips with one another. It's relevant if they're not being honest with family court judges. It's All of that's relevant. And here sits the lawyer who's been in many situations like this, and he ain't sure. And I'll give you a for instance. Uh, you've heard me talk about my former colleague Jeff Fortenberry, who was prosecuted by the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Central District of California in a case investigated by the FBI. And what I'm about to tell you is not my opinion. It's not, like, subject to debate. Uh, these are facts. These are facts that may, may, may very well have been admitted to by the government. So the FBI agents, at a minimum, misled Jeff Fortenberry and may have lied to him. Okay? So you with me? So you got cops that, at a minimum, misled, may have lied. You got prosecutors who did the exact same thing, at a minimum, misled and may have lied. You got a prosecutor, a federal prosecutor, donating to Democrat causes and then prosecuting a Republican congressman. And I know all of you out there are thinking, God, that should be really relevant. A jury has a right to know that the person standing in front of them prosecuting a Republican congressman donated to a group that wanted to get rid of Republican congressmen. I know you're all sitting there thinking, God, that's relevant. It goes to bias. It goes to prosecutorial vindictiveness. And yet the trial judge did not allow any of that to come in. Not a single bit of it. Now, Jeff Fortenberry's conviction was overturned on appeal, but not for any of those reasons. It was a venue reason. It wasn't any of what we just went over. So as you analyze Fannie Willis, I want you to keep in mind, and I had Jimmy Jordan on the show the other night, and Jimmy put his finger on it. What you really need to be looking for is coordination. Was there coordination between Georgia prosecutors and the federal government? And by that, I mean Merrick Garland's uh, Department of Justice, uh, Jack Smith, Democrat members of Congress. Has there been coordination that might make it relevant enough that a judge would allow it to go before a jury? So the moral of all of this is do not ever assume because it is relevant to us or it's relevant politically or it's relevant in every other facet of life. Do not necessarily assume that it is going to be relevant and or admissible in a court of law. We'll be right back with more of the Trey Gowdy podcast. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine. Second thing that's been on my mind a little bit, I don't talk a lot about abortion. I've, it's been my experience that people's uh, minds uh, usually do not change. 
Uh, they have very deeply held convictions. Um, and arguing about it uh, just usually doesn't change people's minds. Persuasion sometimes works. Asking questions sometimes works. Incremental change can occur. But in terms of like fundamentally changing someone's position on any deeply held cultural issue, um, it's rare. But it is going to be a political issue in November. So I, I think it is there are a, a couple of things worth noting. Number one, as a country, we've really never settled on the definition of when life begins. There are those who believe it begins at conception. There are those who believe it begins at what they call viability, even though that's a moving target. There are those who believe it begins when there is a heartbeat. There are those who believe it begins at birth. Uh, there may be those who believe. Actually, actually, there was a professor that wrote a piece that it really believes it like begins when the child's like two years old, which most of us call infanticide. But my point being, there's no consensus on when life begins. And so the Republican position was always, this is a matter for the states. That was always what they said. Roe versus Wade was wrongly decided. This is a matter for the states. There is no constitutional right to abortion. The word abortion is not mentioned in the Constitution. Oh, by the way, neither is education, neither is marriage, neither are other things, the right to travel. Other things that we consider to be of constitutional significance are also not mentioned. So then you get the word penumbra, which is kind of the shadow, that space in between light and darkness. And that's where judges say these rights exist, even though they're not mentioned. But we've never settled on a definition. And I don't know that we're going to. So then the next question begins or becomes, who gets to decide? Is it a federal issue? Is it an issue for the Supreme Court, for Congress, for the 50 different states? I'll just be as candid with you as I know how to be. I, I don't want to offend anyone. But on the other hand, I'm never running for office again. So I don't know how you can have 50 different definitions on when life begins. I, I, I really don't. I don't know how if you live on this side of the South Carolina, North Carolina border, life begins at X. But if you happen to be transported by ambulance to North Carolina or to Georgia, it somehow like begins some other time. I, that makes zero sense to me. I don't, I don't understand it. And by the way, life is mentioned twice in the U.S. Constitution. And it's the due process clause. Certain things can't be taken from you without due process. Life, liberty, property. So there's that word, life. So I'm not necessarily saying I'm an outlier who thinks it is a federal issue. I'm just saying I understand the argument that you can't have 50 different definitions. Here's what I really, really, really want to like be paying attention to this fall is how the issue is discussed, like the tone around the issue. So when it reverted to the states, you had certain lawmakers trying to outdo themselves to see how they could uh, come up with the most restrictive laws possible. And while he may be an outlier, uh, there was a member of the state house in my own state who either wittingly or unwittingly, maybe he just doesn't understand the murder statute. Maybe he just doesn't understand the death penalty statute well enough to know that what he was 
advocating for was that women who have abortions be eligible for the death penalty. I can just tell you that is not a winning political argument. Uh, that it, that argument will lose voters who otherwise would be very supportive of Republican candidates. It's just the notion that you are going to make the victim of rape or incest under penalty of death carry a child to term is not a winning political argument. And by the way, yes, I do know it's rare. I do know it's rare. Uh, I actually prosecuted a case where a young woman did become pregnant as a result of a horrific, horrific serial rape over the course of hours. She did become pregnant. And her decision was to carry the child to term and put it up for adoption. But I emphasized the word her. Cannot imagine, nor would I ever as a prosecutor have prosecuted her. But if you're looking for issues that may drive turnout, uh, that would be one to keep your eye on in November. Two more things before I let you go. Ron DeSantis dropped out, uh, served on two committees with Governor DeSantis, uh, played golf with him. Uh, never, I mean, I went to Florida, got to ride from one part of Florida to another with he and Casey. Um, she's one of the more delightful conversationalists uh, I have been around. He has a wonderful academic pedigree, obviously served our country in uniform, a whip smart. Um, I liked him very much personally. I enjoyed serving with him. He obviously did a good job as the governor of Florida in the eyes of most because he won an overwhelming reelection victory. And yet he did not do well when he ran for president. I just would caution people. There have been less than 50 of our fellow citizens who have ever been the president of the United States. 50 out of the hundreds of millions who have been fortunate fortunate enough to be citizens of this country. Less than 50. So there is a difference between losing and failing. I refuse to believe that Ron DeSantis or Tim Scott or anyone, Mike Pence or anyone else who ran but did not finish the race or did not come in first. I refuse to consider them to be failures. And maybe I'm in the minority. Maybe I just have a soft spot in my heart for those who are willing to run because it is very, very difficult to do so. So ultimately, the jury is never wrong. Uh, The jury speaks. Ron did not carry a county in Iowa. Uh, Things weren't looking great in New Hampshire or South Carolina, and he made the difficult but correct decision to say, not now. Uh, The voters are saying not now. That doesn't mean not ever. just means not now. I just, I don't know. In politics, people like to dance on other people's graves. I don't. It's hard to run for office, whether you like anything he said or nothing he said. It's hard to run for office. You put a lot of your life on hold. It's a very, very difficult nomination and election to win. And I'm going to think back on other forms of service that he gave to our country um, and do so with gratitude. I actually am friends with someone. I believe it was his commanding officer when he was in the Navy. I know they had a relationship. I believe my friend was Ron's commanding officer, I'm going to think about him in a smart, snappy naval uniform serving our country and not a guy in a fleece pullover 
reluctantly calling it quits on a presidential run. We'll be right back with more of the Trey Gowdy podcast. Lastly, we'll end with some good news. Well, we'll end with some kind of just plain news, and then we'll end with some good news. Uh, Tim Scott had a choice, either endorse or not endorse. He was, I guess, on our show a couple weeks ago, and I think his leaning was to not endorse at the time. This was a couple of months ago. He ultimately decided to endorse uh, the former president. Um, I don't think it was a choice among candidates. I don't think it was a choice about whether he was going to endorse President Trump or Governor Haley or Governor DeSantis or whoever else was in the race. I really think it was a choice between whether he was going to endorse President Trump or no one. And I saw some criticism, heard some criticism that because Governor Haley picked him for for the United States Senate, that somehow something was owed. But I'll tell you two people I've never heard say that, Governor Haley and Tim Scott. I've never heard Governor Haley say that there was some quid pro quo. Because I picked you for South Carolina, you owed me something. I think we owe people fairness. We owe people honesty. But Nikki Haley, whom I also like very much, she was a very, very good governor. And by the way, by the way, I met her in 2010. I was running for Congress. I was an underdog. She was running for the governor. She was an underdog. She was fourth out of four when I met her. Fourth out of four. I'm not great with math, but I don't think that's good. In fact, I was at an event in my hometown of Spartanburg at the Marriott. And I'm walking in. I think it was the Marriott. I'm walking in. And a police officer friend of mine whispers that this will be the last event for then-Representative Haley. She's going to drop out of the race tomorrow. And I thought, wow, polling has her fourth out of four. I guess that's a smart thing to do. So I went from hearing that her political obituary was being written to her not only winning that race, but beat three really good candidates and beat them soundly. So people that underestimate her do so at their own peril. She is uh, not afraid of anything or anyone. I'm not saying that. I mean, vote for whoever you want to. Don't vote. I don't care what you do. I'm just saying the notion that somehow or another she expected a quid pro quo or that Senator Scott owed her something. I've never heard either one of them say that. So others who do say that, I need to rethink their position. I think when Governor Haley picked him to fill Jim DeMint's seat, she did what she thought was best for the state of South Carolina. And she was right. He was the best pick. She made absolutely the right pick. And then Tim Scott in the interim has had to run three times. Three times he's had to run statewide. Now, I'll bet you, if you look at the polling, I'll bet you he is the most popular elected official in the state. So they both did the right thing. And the notion that either one of them owes the other one anything other than fundamental fairness, decency, honesty, is um, I just reject it. All right. Lastly, good news, which I'm not known for. Tim Scott. Arguably the world's most eligible bachelor. That's what I call him, although he's never called himself that. He probably thinks some, I don't know, Abercrombie model or 
some Hollywood star or some famous athletes, the world's most eligible bachelor. And you probably do, too. But I call him the world's most eligible bachelor is no more. Over the weekend, he got down on one knee and proposed to his girlfriend, Mindy, who is a lovely, smart, talented young woman from Charleston, South Carolina. Could not be happier for both of them. Uh, I may possibly have known about it ahead of time, possibly when we were commiserating over the Cowboys' failure to advance in the playoffs. He might possibly have brought that up. But when I saw the picture of him down on one knee, I mean, it's hard to not get emotional. This is somebody that looks one of the – Tim says it's the, most, it's the second most important decision you'll ever make in life. So it's hard to not get a little bit emotional. But you know what my real question was? I saw him down on one knee – on Kiowa Island proposing marriage, and I thought, dude, we are both almost 60 years old, and you got down on one knee. How did you get back up? That's my question, is when I get down on one knee, like looking for something like a contact lens or something, actually by the time I get down on one knee, I can't even remember what I'm looking for. I think I'm looking for like something I dropped, but because I'm so old, I can't even remember what I'm looking for. But when I do get back down, I have to call the paramedics to come help me get back up. I know he was a college running back. I know all of that. But the really dramatic part of that picture, it's not the majestic sunset. It's not the surf and the beautiful beaches of Kiowa. It's not this beautiful couple. I'm sitting there thinking, did you get back up? Did other people have to come help you? Did your knees creak a lot? And do you need surgery? Those are the things I'm thinking. So my wife advised me not to write a book on romance. I'm writing another book right now. She advised me not to make it one on romance because that's about the most unromantic takeaway you can have from a sunset engagement proposal. But congratulations, To Tim Scott, best wishes. Mendy could not be happier for both of you. And I will see you when I come home from chilly but beautiful and friendly New Hampshire. Have a great week. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts.